How are we doing this morning, Sound City? Good? It's great to see you. Feels like winter happened overnight, and I'm a little cold. If you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1, we're in week three of our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And if you weren't here, the first week we really did kind of a, an overview of the whole entire book, really fast, looking at all the different themes. We're kind of going at, at lightning speed. Last week, because the book of Hebrews is itself a sermon, it was originally a sermon that was turned into a letter, we thought it would be a good idea to just read straight through the entire book of Hebrews. And that was kind of fun, a little different for us last week. The last couple of weeks, though, we've, we've gone over a ton of content. And today, four verses. So I want to slow things down a little bit. I'd even like to, to, to read this passage. I'm going I'm to read it twice. I'm going to read these first four verses twice. And I want to ask and invite you to let these words really sink in and really soak into your hearts, into your minds, so that we can see what it is that Jesus wants to teach us today. So if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Let's read that one more time, church. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Father God, I don't know where everyone is coming from today as we walk through these doors and sit down together for this time of, of opening your word. God, maybe some are here today and they're feeling fairly composed. They're feeling like things are stable or in a good place. God, others are coming in here today frantic, hurried, anxious, unsure about the future. God, wherever we are at today, my prayer is simply that you would help us all to have a bigger view of Jesus. We need to see Jesus. We need to hear Jesus. We need to experience Jesus today more than anything else we need in our lives. And God, I pray that that would be true today as we look at these verses at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Guard my lips, Lord. Help me to only teach that which is in accordance with your truth. Give us all receptive hearts, teachable hearts that we might grow. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Do you own something unique? Maybe something valuable or, or even one of a kind? Maybe, uh, maybe you have an heirloom that somebody passed down. It's a, a unique family possession, something that you own that, that is just like nothing else in the world. Or maybe some of you are really good at garage sales or swap meets or, or uh, uh, antique shopping, and you found that kind of one special thing that there's, there's just really nothing like it. I own, uh, I own a guitar. It's certainly not a, a very expensive guitar. Uh, it's not the, the greatest quality brand or most respected brand of guitar, but my parents gave it to me uh, as a high school graduation present. And that's not exactly what makes it unique. What makes it unique is the person who had it made went to the factory. He didn't just buy one of the ones that they made off the assembly line. He actually went to the factory and had this custom guitar put together. And it really is a one of a kind. It's something unique. It's something special. Do you have something like that? 
I actually read a story this last week about the, uh, the famous newspaper uh, mogul, a millionaire, uh, William Randolph Hearst. He was reading in the newspaper uh, a description of a piece of art, a painting, and it just captivated him. He says, this is the most unique piece of artwork I've ever heard of. I have to have it. I must have it. And so this billionaire got his, his agent to start looking. He says, spare no expense. Do whatever you've got to do. I have to have this painting. I have to have this piece of artwork. And so uh, the agent started literally traveling around the world for, for months and months, looking everywhere for this special piece of art. And he came back to, to William Randolph Hearst. He said, Mr. Hearst, I have found the painting. It was in your warehouses. You've owned it all along. (laughs) What captures your attention? What to you is special or unique or invaluable? Just something that is one of a kind. As we look at these first verses from the the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know, even though he's going to talk about a lot of different themes, he's going to talk about Old Testament heroes of the faith. He is going to talk about sacrifices in the old covenant system. He's going to talk about uh, persevering and enduring hardships. But through it all and in it all, the one subject of the book of Hebrews is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews starts like a, like a rocket ship taking off, just dives right into the subject matter at hand. These, these four verses that we just read, it's one sentence in Greek. This is a preacher who's really excited to get going and to let you know that no matter what he is gonna talk about, the focal point is Jesus. And he wants you to know that Jesus is utterly unique. There has never been another person in the history of the world who is like Jesus. There is in fact no other being in all of the universe who is like Jesus. He is special. He is to be prized and treasured above all else. Jesus is unique. And he's going to address these three fundamental needs that we have as human beings. We need to hear a message from God. Not only do we need to hear a message from God, we need to see a picture of God. And third, most importantly, we need to have our sins forgiven by God. And so I want to give you today, as we unpack these verses, I want to give you three key words, okay? Three key words. They are communication, demonstration, and purification. I'm so happy and proud of myself. I actually got them all to rhyme, right? Communication from God a demonstration of God and purification from our sins. So those are our three key words. Let's look at these these three aspects of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is unique in his communication. Verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but, that's an important linking word. If you have your Bible, underline that, highlight that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. First thing we need to see about this is that God spoke. How many of you know that our God, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks? We have a God who speaks. God, if, you, if, you've, if you've never read the Bible before and you just open it up, page one, Genesis chapter one, and you start reading, verse one, in the beginning, uh, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. And then verse three, you are three verses in. What does it say? And God said, let there be light. And God starts creating the universe by his word. He starts speaking. You keep reading. God is speaking with Adam and Eve. You flip the next page. God is speaking to uh, their son, Cain. You keep flipping the page. God is speaking to Noah, telling him to build an ark. You keep going. God speaks to Abraham. He speaks to Isaac. He speaks to Jacob. He speaks to Joseph. God speaks to Moses saying, I'm gonna use you to, to liberate the people from their slavery in Egypt. God speaks to the kings. God speaks to the judges before them. God speaks to the prophets. You go all the way into the New Testament. God is still speaking to the apostles and telling them to write down things that they've heard and things that they've seen. You go to the very last page of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the second from the last verse in the entire Bible, and God is still speaking. We have a God who is communicative. He wants to speak to his people. And that flies in the face of our deistic culture. 
You guys know what deism is? You familiar with that term, that phrase deism or, or deistic? Here's what deism says. Deism says there is a God. He exists. He created everything. But he doesn't really like us that much. And so he'd rather just kind of keep a safe, respectable distance. You do your thing. I'm going to kind of sit up here and watch. And we're not going to really interact that much. I use this word intentionally. That is one of the most satanic lies that our culture buys into widespread. That there's a God, sure, there's a God, but he's just far off and he's distant. No, no, no. The Bible would say that God is a God who speaks. Before Jesus came in the flesh, God spoke to people called prophets. We see that in this verse. God spoke to the prophets and they wrote down what they heard from God. Actually, sometimes God directly commands them to write these things down. They wrote these things down. They, they, they heard messages from God and this, these writings were collected and they became known as scriptures, sacred writings, holy writings. And everything that was written before Jesus came, we now know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Then Jesus shows up, changes the world, blows up everyone's paradigm, concept, understanding of what God is doing in the world. And, and these people called apostles started writing down, what in the heck just happened? Jesus just changed everything and they started writing it down. And these apostles wrote things down from God and those two were added to the scriptures. They became known as the New Testament writings. Everything before Jesus is the Old Testament. Everything after Jesus or during and after Jesus is the New Testament. And here's what's important for you to know. These writings are not just man's opinion about God. It's a very common claim in our culture that people say, yeah, but that's just what people thought about God. That's just what people understood about God. This is people just wrestling through their understanding of the divine. No, the Bible itself claims to be direct revelation from God. And so as such, it has authority in the lives of believers and in the life of the church. Amen? The Bible, the word of God, is not just man's ideas about God. The Bible claims to be direct revelation from God. And that's a claim that you either have to accept or reject. That's not something that you can straddle the fence on. So the Bible has authority because it claims to be direct revelation from God. But here's another thing you need to understand about the Bible. We love the Bible, but we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. We love the scriptures, we're so thankful for them. But the scriptures are not the end goal. The scriptures serve to point us to Jesus. So we don't say, thank you, God, that we have the Bible. This is now all I need. No, we go to the Bible and say, I want to know what God is like so that I can fall on my face and worship him with greater affection. Do you understand that difference? We love the Bible, but we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us about him. God is a God who speaks. God speaks perfectly. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Look at this contrast. The first contrast is between the prophets and his son. Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son. It's important to notice, and, and this is something that we'll have to keep revisiting over and over as we go through Hebrews, the writer gives us these contrasts and they are not a contrast between bad and good. They're a contrast between good and amazing. The prophets are good. The prophets spoke words from God. It's just that Jesus blows them all out of the water. The prophets, the prophets are good, but, but there's a problem. Look at it, it says, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke by the prophets. That means that the communication was bits and pieces. A little information here, a little information there. All true, all good, all right, but just not the, the full picture. Broken up. A little bit here, a little bit there. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he speaks the fullest picture, the fullest revelation of God that has ever been spoken. Every religion, every religion claims to be able to speak about God. But, but this, is, this is a unique speaking about God. 
Lots of religions have prophets. Lots of religions have people who claim to speak messages on behalf of God. But the Christian faith is unique in that it says that the son of God himself is the one who is communicating to us. That's a good communication. Would you agree with that? And look at this. It says this. It says about the son, it says that he has been appointed the, the heir of all things. You guys know what an heir is? He's appointed the heir of all things. That means that he he's the one who is going to be in charge of the whole universe. He's the one who's going to be in charge of the whole universe. He's a son, you know, inheritance. Like if you think of somebody who maybe owns a business, somebody who runs a a massive corporation and one day they're going to hand it off to their son. The prophets are like spokesmen who work for the PR company. Right? And I know that might sound kind of like a dirty word. They're, They're good. It's an ethical company. They have good spokesmen. Their PR firm is wonderful. But there's a difference between reading a blurb from a company spokesman versus sitting down and having dinner with the son of the founder. It's a big difference, right? He's the the heir of all things through whom he created the world. Whoa. This, This prophet, he speaks to us about God, but he also created the world. There is no claim anywhere in Islam that Muhammad created the world. There is no claim from any Mormon that Joseph Smith created the world. They're spoken of as prophets who communicate about God. Our prophet, the son of God, actually created the world. And he's the heir of all things, which means he's in charge. All things. That's in my Bible. Thank you, Andrew. This is, a, this is amazing. This is an amazing distinction. Prophets are good, the sun, communication from the sun is even better. Notice this, notice this other contrast. It's a, it's a new day. It's a new season. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days. How many of you know that we are living in the last days? And, and that should not be heard um, in kind of an alarmist, you know, get your bunker ready sort of way. What what that means is for 2,000 years, since this sermon was first delivered, we're living in the last days. Ever since Jesus died, was buried in the ground, laid in a tomb for three days, and then when he he got up out of the tomb on the third day alive, well, that changed some things. This is kind of a new day. We've never seen that happen before. It's the last days. This is the last season. This is the season where the gospel goes forward. People are given an opportunity to hear this communication about God, to repent, to believe in the gospel, to be saved, to be adopted into the family of God. It's a new day. It's a new season. The old communication before was good. It was fine. But this is just radically new. I was thinking about this analogy. My my daughter, my oldest daughter, I have four daughters, Pray for me. I have four daughters. My oldest one is 10 years old. And and it occurred to me, she has never known life, not just without cell phones, she has never known life without iPhones. Yeah, she's a lucky kid, right? I was an early adopter. I got the very first iPhone when it came out. And so for her entire life, to her, phone means remarkable touchscreen, camera, texting, you know, games, et cetera. Like that's her, that's what all she's ever known. I was having a conversation with one of my grandparents a while back where they were talking about when they grew up, they didn't even have a phone like with a cord and like a dial, like a caveman. Like they didn't even have that in their house at all. When my, when my grandma was a kid, she didn't even have a phone. They got a phone. It was a big deal. My daughter has only ever known iPhone. Now, There's a whole separate sermon in there somewhere about whether that's a good or a bad thing. But I'm I'm just saying, having a telephone is a good thing. It's good communication. You can talk to somebody, even if you have to like spin a dial and sparks are shooting out and it's crazy. That's good. But we're just in a whole new ballgame. The world has literally changed because of global communication, the advent of smartphones and that type of technology. You guys understand that analogy? It's, It's like that, but even more so. God spoke through the prophets. It's good, but it is a new day. It is a new era of communication. You don't just get bits and pieces and fragments from the prophets. You get to hear directly from the Son of God. That's amazing. You and I are privileged. 
You and I are to be envied by the people throughout the history of the world, especially before the coming of Christ, because we have unprecedented access to information and truth about God, because not just because of technology, but because God has spoken through his son. And each one of us can hear that message. You ever had, um, you ever had a famous person's phone number? Or maybe you had a friend who had a famous person's phone number. And if you had a friend who had a famous person's phone number, I guarantee you've heard about it because people talk about that kind of stuff, right? Text people, call people, famous people. There was a, an early church father. Uh, his name was Anthony of Egypt. He, he was known as somebody that the emperor would write letters to. He was a good theologian. The emperor would write him letters. And, and people were like, oh, Anthony, you're you're getting letters from the emperor. That's amazing. They kind of thought that was cool. They were a little celebrity starstruck because, you know, the emperor. And this is what Anthony, this early church father, he says this, do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us for he is but a man, but rather wonder that God wrote the law for men and has spoken to us through his son. It's amazing. It doesn't matter whose phone number you have. It doesn't matter if you pick up the phone right now and, and the president of the United States calls you directly. That is not as impressive as the fact that the son of God has spoken directly to us. It's amazing, church. It's amazing. Jesus is unique in his communication from God. Jesus is also unique in his demonstration of who God is. Pick it up in verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, every religion wants to show us what God is like. Every, every founder of every religion in the world says, if you follow me, if you live your life like I live it, you'll see a picture of what, what God is like. But here and again, Jesus is utterly unique in the history of the world because he makes claims that no other religious founder makes. Go with me, if you would, to John chapter 14. Listen to what Jesus says. Philip, he's one of his disciples, they're talking, and Philip says, Lord Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, note the exasperation in Jesus' voice, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I hear that like record scratch noise in my head right now. You know, right? Hold on a second, time out. You know how people like to say, oh, Jesus was a good moral teacher, a doer of good deeds. That is crazy people talk right there. Jesus is in essence saying, if you have looked at me, if you have seen me, you have seen God. There has never been another religious founder who ever made that claim. In fact, the smart ones would say, if you have seen me, you've seen a person pointing to God and if you give me enough money, I'll show you how to get to God, right? Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, believe me, Jesus says, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves, talking about the miracles that he's doing. The son and the father, they are distinct, but there is a sameness. There is a oneness to the two of them. And this very quickly gets us into some deep theological waters. We talk about the Trinity and how are we to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And then when you bring the Holy Spirit in, it all just uh, fries our, our brains a little bit. But look at what it says here. Look at what it says in verse three. It says, he is the radiance of, of the glory of God. Radiance and glory are, are meant to bring to mind the idea of light. Bright, shining, white, hot, blinding light. In fact, throughout the pages of the Bible, 
when God shows up, light is one of the most common metaphors, light and heat. God is in the house. We know this because there is a blinding light. Think about in the Old Testament when Moses spent some time with God up on the mountain. It says that God's glory showed up and, and, and Moses was in the presence of God so much so that when Moses came down off of the mountain, he was literally glowing and it freaked out the people of Israel and they put a towel over his head because they were just too wigged out by it. That's right, that's true. There's in the New Testament, I was just reading to my kids last night when Jesus went on the, on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples, and then Moses and Elijah shine, show up, and Jesus, it says, is transfigured, and it's blinding white light, and the disciples like bowed down, they started worshiping, they said, we're gonna camp some tents right here, we're just gonna stay here, because this is amazing, we have seen God. We have seen the glory of God. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory. Well, wait, are you saying he is the glory? He's the radiance? Are they the same? Are they different? Think of it this way. The sun has rays. Can you separate the rays of the sun from the sun itself? Here's what another early church father, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, put it this way. He says, where there's light, there's also radiance. And where there is radiance, there's also light. And thus we cannot have a light without radiance nor radiance without light because both the light is in the radiance and the radiance is in the light. Make sense? Tracking? This is admittedly difficult for us to understand, but there is a sameness to the Father and the Son and there is a distinction between the Father and the Son. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And... He's the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint. That phrase exact imprint, in the Greek, it's the word character. You get to see what somebody is like, you know, their character. This comes from the practice in the ancient world before there was, you know, photographs and even before paintings were widely distributed. An emperor, a royalty, or a dignitary would have someone come in and do a sculpture of them to make a... a, a character of what they're like, and it would be turned into a mold, turned into a dye, and they could use that then to make various imprints of what they're like, and then they could send things throughout the whole emperor, and if it bore the imprint of the emperor, then you knew that it was official communication from the emperor. It bore his imprint, it bore his, his character, bore his nature. You know what's fascinating? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created mankind, male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them. Did you know that mankind, God's original creative purpose for mankind is to display what he is like? That is our first goal. That is our first directive. As human beings, we are supposed to demonstrate to the world what God is like. Raise your hand if you've done that perfectly. John Calvin uses the analogy of a mirror. We're like a mirror that is supposed to reflect the light and the glory of God out to a watching universe. But the problem is, because of sin, that image is not destroyed, it's not done away with, but it is bent and warped and marred and skewed. And now we reflect God's glory like one of those carnival funhouse mirrors, right? And you look at it, you go, my hips are not that big. And you, you, it just it's all warped and it's twisted. Because of our sin, we do not, reflect the glory of God as we ought to. The good news is all who trust in Jesus, the promise is that we are being put back together from one degree of glory to another. How many of you are thankful that you reflect God's glory better now than you did 10 years ago, right? Five years ago, 20 minutes ago, right? You're being put back together to reflect the image of God. Now, here's the deal. Each and every one of us have failed in our mandate to reflect the image, to reflect the glory, to reflect the character of God. But we may have fallen 10,000 times. Jesus never failed once. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. You wanna know what God's like? You look at Jesus. You wanna know how God would act in a certain situation? You look at Jesus. You wanna know what God would say to a particular person? You look at Jesus. He is the exact reflection of the glory of God. That's good news for us. That means we, we can see a picture of what God's like because that's something we desperately need. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, he created the world. He sustains it as well. This is, this is not in my notes, but I just, 
I felt led this morning to say this to you. What are you trying to uphold right now? What are you trying to keep from falling apart in your life? Maybe some of you uh, tend more towards the, um, can I say control freak side of things? You want things to be in order. You want things to be organized. You want things to, to line up and, and, and you want everything to be upheld and in, in place, but stuff is just not working out. Did you know that Jesus upholds the universe, the universe, the universe by the word of his power? If you're anything like me, I can't even uphold a clean car by the word of my power. But Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. What's falling apart for you? Jesus is still in charge. What's stressing you out? Jesus upholds the universe. This conversation about the Father and the Son, the, the sameness and the difference, the, the radiance of the glory of God, you'll notice I've actually quoted some, some early church fathers and there's a reason for that. This conversation early in our family history. If the church is a family, very early in our family history, the church started having some real difficult discussions. What does it mean that the father and the son are, are the same, but that they're different? What does it mean that he and the father are one and he's the radiance of the glory of God? And they started really wrestling through these questions. And early on, like we're talking in the year 200, year 300, God providentially used some, some people to kind of speak up and say some things about Jesus and the Father, that the rest of the church kind of kind of sniffed it. That doesn't, that doesn't smell right. That doesn't quite, that doesn't sit right. That doesn't seem like it matches up with what the Bible teaches. The first one was a guy named Sibelius. And he really focused in on the sameness of the Father and the Son, so much so that he said the Father and the Son are the same person, but they're just kind of wearing different hats or playing different roles. You know, for those of you who are fathers, you, you have a father role when you relate to your kids and you're a son. When you, when you talk to your dad or your mom, you're a son. He said, it's kind of like that. There's one person, Father and the Son, they're the same person. They just kind of play different roles. And the church went, hmm, I don't think that, that doesn't sound quite right. Another guy, Arias, boy, he created a big stir. He emphasized more the, the distinction. He went so far as to say the son is not actually fully divine, but he's this created being. He's the greatest of all the created beings. And there was a time when the son didn't exist, but the, but the father caused him to come into existence. And the church went, whoa, 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 time out, time out. And so in the year 325 AD, a, a large gathering of church leaders was, was called together in the, in the city of Nicaea, and they spent, get this, a couple of years, different times going back and forth about what is this relationship between the father and the son? You guys think like membership class is long, spent a couple of years in council. And they wrestled through it. And verses like this in Hebrews chapter one were very influential in their thinking of understanding there's a sameness, but there's a distinction between the father and the son. Here's what they put down. This part of the Nicene Creed comes from this council of Nicaea. This is what they write about the father and the son. This is not all of it. It's, it's long, much longer than this, but here's a snippet. We believe in one God, the father almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all word, worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, not created, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is in our family history, church. We are Nicene Christians, and when we talk about um, aberrant Christian groups, other groups that splinter off from historic Orthodox Christianity, this is almost always the starting point. You could call them cults, you could call them um, heterodox, you could call all sorts of different names, but, but this is early in our church history and we stand on this foundation of great men and great women who went before us who thought through these things. Now here, here's the thing, here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to drive at. Jesus isn't just a better communicator of God's truth. He shows us what God is like because he himself is one substance with the Father, the same character that's very unique about Jesus. Now, Jesus is a better communicator. Jesus is the perfect demonstration. And those are unique, but here's the thing. Prophets spoke, Jesus speaks better. Mankind images God, Jesus images God better. There is one thing 
that the Son of God has done that is utterly unique, utterly different than anything anyone else has ever done, and that is he died for the forgiveness of sinners. Nobody else did that. The most unique thing that he has done is make purification for our sins. Look at this, picking back up in the middle of verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about angels, this idea of Jesus being greater than the angels. That's gonna be uh, the majority of the rest of this first chapter. And it's very, it's kind of tough and a little bit confusing. So naturally I asked Pastor Shane to teach on that next week. So he'll be covering more of that. I really just wanna focus on this idea of Jesus making purification. The starting point is this. Starting point is an admission. Sin makes us dirty. Sin makes us unclean. The Bible would use the word defiled. When God is, is bright, shining, unapproachable light, our uncleanness, we don't like to, we don't like to get into that light. It's a very uncomfortable place. How many of you know that your house can look really clean when all the lights are turned off? You turn those lights on, uh-oh, I remember a few years ago when we sold our house, we had a, a real estate photographer come to the house, which is always an intimidating experience because you want it to look nice in the pictures so that somebody will come and visit it and try to buy it. And they said, every single light in the house needs to be turned on. Every single blind needs to not just be opened, but like pulled all the way open. And yes, I'm gonna even bring in extra photographer lights to shine brightness all over the house. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing like kid hand smears on the walls that I didn't even know were there, right? Just light everywhere. It's like, that is disgusting. Let me get a you know, wash rag to clean that up. That bright light reveals things that we didn't even see were there before. Here's the thing about the bright shining light of God. It's an x-ray light. It doesn't just stay on the surface. The light of God doesn't just shine on us on, on outside things that we can control. You and I can fool each other. You and I can put on a good outside face. We can show up to church on a Sunday. We can smile. We can shake a hand. We can hold it together. But inwardly, the, the, the searching light of God, x-ray pierces all the way down to the deepest parts of us and knows stuff about us that maybe we didn't even know about ourselves things that would make us very uncomfortable if other people knew. And I'm telling you, this, this light, this blinding x-ray light gaze of, of God, it's very uncomfortable, but it is the most necessary place that we need to go if we want to truly experience freedom and healing. Amen? It's hard. And we don't like to go there. In fact, we've, got, we've gotten good very sophisticated at messing around with this, this guilt, messing around with this, this stain, this defilement. We, we have some wrong ways to deal with it. A couple, just to highlight for you, we like to try to repay. Rather than going into the, the light of, of God and receiving his grace, we like to repay. That can look like paying penance. Yeah, I've, I've done bad things. I've done things I'm guilty or ashamed of, but I'm just gonna work it off. I'm just gonna, you know, volunteer. I'm just gonna do good deeds to everybody. Some people wanna repay it by just beating themselves up. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take it out on myself. I feel guilty, I feel defiled, I feel stained, and so I'm just gonna repay it myself. Uh, the second one is very closely related. It's religion. It's a specific form of repayment. It says this, how could I be dirty or defiled or unclean before God? Look at all these good things that I do for God. I'm gonna to try to repay specifically through moral effort, religious works, instead of really dealing with the root of the issue. A third wrong way that we try to deal with the stain of sin is through redefining it. A redefinition of the stain of sin. Oh no, that's, that's, not, that's not really sinful. That's just part of who I am. That's just part of, that's just part of, you know, that's just the way I was born. It's not really sinful you need to get with the times. Don't be so old fashioned. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Let's just redefine what is and isn't 
defiling. How many of you know that our culture is particularly good at that? It's like walking into somebody's house and they've got you know, feces spread all over the wall. You say, that is disgusting and defiling. They say, no, it's an art project. You know somebody from Seattle has tried that, right? It wasn't really sinful. It's just supposed to be that way. We redefine it. Number four, sometimes we try to just relocate. I'm just gonna move on. That, what I did was, was defiling. It was staining. It put a, put a burden on my conscience. So I'm just gonna move on. Pretend like it's not there. Relocate, move to a different uh, place. It's a new day. It's a new season. That's in my past. Why look back? Why deal with those things? Just move on. I actually know people who literally move to different cities in a hope and an attempt that the baggage in their lives wouldn't follow them to a new city. I have watched time and time again in pastoral ministry, people say, I just need to get a, a change of pace as though that was gonna fix everything. It's not gonna deal with sin at its deepest level. And then number five, some people just resign. They just give in. Yes, I am dirty, I am defiled, I am filthy, I am stained. There's nothing that can be do about it. That's just who I am. I guess I need to just get used to it. I'm a filthy person. I'm a dirty person. The promise of the gospel is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I can be cleansed at the deepest level possible, purified. Not just of the defiling effects of our own sin, I should say, but also the defiling effects of other people's sin. How many of you have ever been sinned against and you thought, I just feel, I feel slimed feel like you want to take a shower. You feel like you've been violated. The blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to cleanse us from both. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel that in the son of God, we have perfect purification, unique purification. Not like these wrong ways to try to deal with the stain of sin, but a perfect cleansing. Look at this, I just uh, kind of a survey throughout some of the verses in the Bible that, that highlight this. Go into the Old Testament, Psalm 51. This is written by David, who was a grade A, top-notch sinner. This guy knew how to sin with gusto. And this is what he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop. That's a, a plant that had cleansing and medicinal properties. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you hear the confidence in his voice? David was a man who despite his uh, proclivity towards great sinfulness, he knows who his God is and he knows the hope of forgiveness. Isaiah 1, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. God says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. How many of you have ever been wearing light-colored pants or light-colored clothes and you spilled something like wine or, or coffee or you got blood on it? It's a, it's, a, it's a stain that's permanent. You pretty much have to get rid of those clothes. There's nothing that can take care of that stain, that scarlet red stain. But in the gospel, the promise is that even though our sin is a more indelible sin than the stain of, of blood or wine or coffee on clothes, the blood of Jesus is a more powerful cleansing agent. The blood of Jesus can deal all the way with the stain of sin. We're in the New Testament, 1 John, one of, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He says this. He's, he's actually in this context. He's talking about walking in the light, walking before the, the gaze of, of the light of God. He says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what, church? Cleanse us. From how much unrighteousness? How much unrighteousness? Some of you have wrongly believed the lie that your sinfulness has taken you out of the running for the purifying grace of God. And I'm here to tell you, not on my own authority, but on the authority of the word of God, there is no sin, there is no sinner who is too far beyond the reach of the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus. 
As Jesus was nailed to the cross, his hands nailed to the cross, his feet nailed to the cross, a, a crown of thorns placed on his head, a spear stuck into his side. Blood just poured out of his body. And in his death, in his poured out blood, we find forgiveness. We find cleansing, not some sort of external thing to deal with how we feel about our sin, but something that actually cuts right to the very heart of the matter. It says in Hebrews 1, 2, after making purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know what that means? That means the work is done. The work is complete. Later on, we're gonna see that the writer of Hebrews makes a big point to say that under the old covenant, they always had to make all these sacrifices and they, they never really got to sit down because sacrifices of, of bulls and sacrifices of goats, they could only deal with external sin. They didn't really get to the heart of the matter. And so you're always constantly working. But in the death of Jesus Christ, we have a permanent cleansing that stands once and for all. There's no more work that is needed. Those of you who are exhausted trying to clean yourself up, know that the purification that Jesus provides is utterly unique. It is utterly perfect. There is nothing else required. And when you come and you stand under the cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus Christ, God looks at you as though you were as perfect as Jesus himself. God looks at you as though you have no guilty stain. You are free in Christ. That's good news. I hope somebody needed good news today. You don't need a burden. You don't need to try harder. You don't need seven steps to deal with your sinful conscience. You need Jesus. He is unique. He is utterly different. There is no one and no thing like Jesus, the son of God. And so I ask you, is Jesus unique in your view? Is Jesus merely one of the options that you've chosen, the best option maybe? Or is Jesus just in a whole different category, a whole different, a whole different ball game? Some of you, is, is Jesus big enough in your view? You have stressful circumstances, you have difficult hardships, things you're going through, things I'm not trying to put those down at all, but I'm just saying, have, have, you, have you thought about lifting up your gaze? Have you thought about looking at Jesus and seeing how much bigger he is than any of those challenging circumstances you're facing right now? Are you struggling under the burden of a, of a guilty conscience? Are you struggling under that weight of that stain of sin that you just don't really know how to shake, you don't really know what to do with? The word today is Jesus. He is unique. He's better. He's different. There's no one like him. And he's offering himself to you today. Dear Christian, how do you need to see Jesus as bigger? How do you need to deal with that nagging feeling in the back of your mind or heart? Like, well, maybe I'm just not really clean. How do you need to come to Jesus? Those of you who are not Christians, what treadmill are you running on trying to deal with the weight of your heavy conscience, the weight of your, the stain of your sin. What masks are you wearing? Maybe today Jesus is inviting you to take off that mask. Allow that light to shine on you. It's, it's gonna be uncomfortable. Can I just be honest with you guys on that? It's like being in a dark room and then walking out into bright blinding sunlight. It's not a pleasant experience, but it's healing and it's right and it's for you. So I wanna invite us now to a time of response. And we're going to respond as we do in a variety of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward now, if they would, please, and begin to collect the offering. If, if you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like. There's information about how to give online uh, in your Connect card. And I would say this, church, we never give out of guilt or duty or obligation. Amen? We give out a joyful response, joyful worship to the one who has given us everything. So while they're collecting the offering, I'd like to go over a couple of discussion questions with you, uh, things for us to talk about in our homes and our community groups this week, and a couple of things to be praying about too. Number one, why is it so important that Jesus is not merely a better option among many, but that he is altogether unique? What does it mean that Jesus is equal to the Father, but distinct from the Father? And what errors can we fall into when it comes to understanding the Trinity? Let me give you a hint. This is a, this is a, this is a, a freebie, free of charge. 
all of those analogies for the Trinity you've ever heard, three-leaf clover, water, ice, steam, father, son, employee, eggshell, white, and yolk, they're all terrible. Throw them all out and run away as quickly as you can. None of them work. God is, God is beyond any of those analogies. Of the five wrong ways to deal with the guilt of sin, repay, religion, redefine, relocate, or resign, which one are you most prone to? Can I invite you to be more vulnerable this week? How is Jesus asking you to bring your sin and guilt to him so that you can experience true purification? Again, being vulnerable. And number five of the three unique aspects of Jesus highlighted in this passage, communication, demonstration, and purification, which one struck you the most and what was most impacting to you from these verses? A couple things to pray about this week. Number one, pray that Jesus would become more unique, more valuable, more amazing in all of our hearts and minds, that we'd see him Bigger than we ever have before. Some of you need to have your, your paradigm, your vision of Jesus just kind of blown up so you can see he's bigger, greater, more unique, more valuable than you ever thought. Pray for one another to experience the cleansing effects of God's grace. And pray for those who do not yet know Jesus to come to know him as the one uniquely able to show us who God is and how we can be cleansed of our sin. You know people who are walking under a heavy burden. They need to experience that cleansing effect of the blood of Jesus. We're also gonna respond through communion, the celebration of the Lord's table. And today as we celebrate communion, this is for all who are Christians. If you are a Christian, you are invited to the table. Today as we take the bread and we, we dip it into the wine, I want you to remember that this is where your cleansing is found. This is where your healing is found. Maybe before you come forward, you might need to actually just sit and take a minute to allow the Holy Spirit, that spotlight gaze, to work on your heart just for a minute. God, is there any sin that I've been holding on to? Is there any uncleanness in me that I need to confess or repent of before I come and, and celebrate the table? It's okay if you, wanna, if you wanna sit for a minute today before just jumping up and running up to communion. That's okay. Just reflect. And we're gonna sing. We're gonna sing because our God is so amazing and he's so valuable and he's so unique that if we were to just sing his praises, we could do so for all of eternity without running out of things to praise him for. Amen? That's how valuable he is. So I hope that you lift your voices. I hope that you pray and you sing loudly today to our one unique savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and I'll pray and we'll begin our time of response. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uniqueness of Jesus, that he is not just a better among many. He is utterly and wholly different from anyone else who's ever spoken for you, for anyone else that's ever demonstrated you, and, and clearly for anyone that's ever offered forgiveness of sins. God, I pray today for my brothers and sisters, for all of us, that we would run to Jesus, put down our guards, take off our masks, quit trying to pretend like we've got it all together on the outside and just run to the one who knows us, flaws, sins, warts and all, and yet poured out his blood for our forgiveness. I pray that this time of singing and this time of response would be sweet before you because God, we come to you with an open heart. I pray all of this in the good and healing name of Jesus. Amen.